where we are diving back into this Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman at the well outside of, um, at the, at the well outside of her village. And if you recall, when we began to look at this, we saw that Jesus is speaking to this Samaritan woman, this woman who has been living with multiple men, who was certainly an outcast, socially, relationally, religiously, and her family in all different, at all different levels. And it's in the middle of this interaction where Jesus has been explaining to her that true living water is found in him, not through thirsting after the things of this life and the things of this world, that there is this profound interaction over the nature of worship and what it is to worship God. And that's where we enter into this passage. Follow along with me as I read from John, beginning at verses 13 and following. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. The woman answered him, I I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit... In your spirit, which you have sent to indwell in us, who call upon the name of Jesus. The spirit that has given new birth, new life, a new heart. Lord, that that spirit, which is your spirit, that you have given to be in us, that your spirit, Lord, we pray would open our hearts, our minds, our souls to you and to your truth. And Lord, for those that are seeking you, moreover, Lord, for those that you are seeking, 
would you draw them to yourself this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage on worship is probably one of the most famous passages on worship. It's certainly a passage that I have preached on here several times at Cornerstone, and we've referred to uh, in a number of different times in a number of different ways. And this past week, as I was working on this message, I came across several images that describe what's happening here. It actually really shifted my thinking on this passage and illuminated aspects of this passage and text that I hadn't considered as much before. And that's what I'm hoping to share with you here this morning. The point of this message is very simple. It is this, is that the Father is seeking worshipers to worship Him. And what we're going to do is we're going to analyze different parts of this statement. That the Father is seeking worshipers to worship Him. So let's begin looking at this ending piece. That God is seeking people to worship Him. We indeed see that in the statement here in verse 23. Where, God, where Jesus says to the woman, the Father is seeking such people, the Father is seeking true worshipers to worship Him. And what is worship? Worship is giving God the all that He is due, the reverence that He is due. It is ascribing to Him the worth that He has that we should give to Him. It is singing His praise. It is it is giving God the wonder and renown that is due to him. But maybe you've had the questions at some point, or maybe the thoughts ever crossed your mind where you're like, where you thought, you know, what's with God anyway? Like, why is he so consumed with himself? I mean, you think about people in our own lives, I mean, it drives us nuts when you meet somebody who is completely consumed with themselves, right? I mean, when someone who's always talking about themselves, who's so, so not only talking about themselves, but so consumed with themselves, and they think that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, I mean, that drives us nuts. And we don't want to be around those types of people. We don't want to talk to those types of people. We really don't want to engage in those types of people. And you get in those moments where you're stuck with somebody, and they're just talking about themselves, and they're talking about themselves some more. And then, you know, maybe they pause in the conversation, and they say, you know what? That's enough about talking about me. Let's hear what you have to say about me, right? And it just consumes with more that the only thing that they're interested in is their own world. And so then it comes and we read Scripture, and Scripture tells us again and again that God calls us to worship Him. He wants us to be consumed with Him. Our confession of faith says that what is man's chief end? The end of life, what is the thing that we're living for, the thing that is of utmost importance, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so what's with God? I mean, this just seems like so contrary to everything that we know is good. And so let me give you a picture of what I think this might be a little bit like. Imagine that you have a financial advisor or you come across a financial advisor, and this financial advisor guarantees to you, and it's, it's a true and genuine guarantee, that if you make an investment in this particular stock that he has, there is an absolute 100%, with 100% certainty, no doubt, for real, that in three years, you are going to get a 100-fold return on this investment. So, 
if you give them a dollar, in three years you will have a hundred dollars. And if you give them ten dollars, in three years you're going to have a thousand dollars. And so if you give them a thousand dollars, in three years you're going to have a hundred thousand dollars. And if you give him ten thousand dollars, in three years, if you give him $10,000, three years later, you are going to have a million dollars. Absolutely guaranteed, and this is certainly going to occur. If this were the case, and you, were, you began thinking about this, and you said, okay, what, what can I do? I've got this, this thing that's going to give this amazing return on investment. And so you, you start thinking, and you're saying, well, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I mean, I don't just want to give a dollar. I mean, I want to have, have more than that, right? I mean, I want to maximize this opportunity that's before me. So let me think, well, if we cut back, you know, if I cut my, if we cut my t- cable TV, and maybe I, 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 I cut my cell phone plan back, and we reduce what we're eating, I can probably scrounge some more dollars there, because in three years, it's a hundredfold return. And you start thinking through this and you say, okay, well, if we save more, man, if I could save half of my salary right now, if I figured out a way to do this, maybe I could sell my house right now and we could do that and then I wouldn't have a mortgage payment and maybe we could move in with somebody else at the moment. If we could do that for this season, if we could just do this for three years, there's going to be this, this remarkable hundredfold investment return that you're going to get back. And so you begin to think through this. And you start to think through all of the different ways that this is going to that this is going to change your life, and you're thinking, you know what? I've, I mean, right now I've I've got various financial pressures in my life. I, I've you know I'm trying to save for retirement. I want to make sure that there's a I've got decent health care that that will take care of me when I when I'm older, so that that's not a burden to my family. Um, but man, before retirement, I, I've got to get my kids through college. And not only getting my kids through college, but probably they're going to get married, and I've got weddings to deal with. And, and the car that I've been driving, I've had for so long, I need to replace my car at some point. And there's all these repairs. But man, if, if I could just hold on for three years, my life would totally change. It would totally change. I would have this huge return on this investment. Okay, what else can I scrounge? What else, what else can I do? And so, periodically, your investment advisor calls you up and says, hey, how's it going? And you say, great news. Like, I, I've got another hundred bucks that I can put into this. And he says, that's awesome. And he's like, well, well, have you considered selling some of the things that you have? It's like, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's go through the house and have a massive yard sale, and let's sell those things so that we can get this massive return. That, th- thanks, I hadn't thought of that. And he calls you back a couple weeks later and says, well, how's it going? And you said, well... You know, I, I came up with some things. We've got another $1,000 we can put into this. And actually, my wife and I were talking. We decided we're going to sell one of our cars, and we're just going to go around in one of our cars right now just because in three years, there is going to be this hundredfold return. And you would do that, and you would change your life because you know that there is something, that there is something that is going to completely change you going to change your entire situation. And so you readily and you freely give it your all. You, you, you recognize that this needs a total and utter investment of everything that you have, 
of every aspect, of every part of who you are, that you really must invest every piece of you. If that's true, and I don't, I would venture to guess that if there was this lock-solid guarantee, I would venture to guess that there's not a person in this room who would not take up that offer, right? There's not a person in this room who wouldn't do everything possible to do that. And when the financial advisor calls you up and he says, can you give a little bit more? Can you figure out a way to do more? You wouldn't say, that is so annoying. Why does he keep bugging me? You come back and you say, yeah, thanks. I I hadn't thought of that aspect. Yeah, thanks for contacting me again. Thanks for reminding me again to devote everything that I have. Thanks for doing that. Then, if that's true, if it is really true that there could be something of so much value that it would change every aspect of your life, something that the change would be so profound that it really demands every piece of you, That if you come before God himself, the one supreme being, the one and only one who is of utter value, the one and only source of blessing, the one and only one who changes your life not only now but for eternity, how much more? Can God urge you, encourage you, even demand and require your complete and total and utter investment? How much much more awe and joy would you have thinking about how much this has changed your life? How much more could you think about, would you think about the implications of what it means to have someone of supreme worth and supreme value in your life. We are created as worshiping beings. God made us to worship. He he created us in such a way that we were made to to worship him that we are only right our life is only rightly ordered when we are seeking him when we find our fulfillment in life. And that we find our fulfillment in life only, God made it that it would only come to us when we find our fulfillment in him. Augustine, you know, famously said, our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find find their rest in you. And so God made us this way. But the challenge for each one of us is that we, if we're not worshiping God, it's not that you don't worship. For we all worship something. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, there is something that you will give your all for. Something to which you are utterly devotion, utterly devoted. Something that you conceive of to being your ultimate good. Something that you will, you will give your all for. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it's your, your family. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's your status. There is something that you will give everything for. And whatever that is, 
that is the thing that you worship. And there is only one thing that is worth that level of devotion, and it is God himself. There is only one thing that can actually give you fulfillment. It is God himself. So why does God want our worship? Well, it's because it's what he most deserves, and also it is because it is what we most need. So God is seeking worshipers to worship him. But consider the, first, the next phrase here. God seeks worshipers. God actually seeks them out. And when I say here that God seeks worshipers, this isn't like I seek really good Christmas presents. It's not a desire like, oh, I, I, I seek a better life. Like it's something that I wish would happen. No, this is actually a statement. God, God seeks. God is seeking worshipers to worship him. It is something that God is actively doing. Now, why does God seek worshipers? Because people hide from God. And in fact, we not only hide from God, we run from him. And we run away and we run fast. This started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. And what happened? God came looking for them. And what did Adam and Eve do? They were hiding. And God says, where are you? Not that he didn't know where they were. It's like a, it's like a child hiding in, underneath a sheet. You can't see me. You can't see me. I'm hiding. God knew where they were. He says, where are you? And they said, we, we hid from you because we were afraid. And for each one of us is that what happens is that in a relationship with God, we, we run from him and we hide from him. And the story of Scripture from Genesis on through the pages is of people. It's the story of a people that, that turn away from God, a people that hide from God, a people that rebel against God. And despite that, it is the story of God's search and rescue mission to pursue after people who are hiding from him and running from him. God's story of, of seeking after people who would want nothing to do with him and who are afraid of him. In fact, Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. That, to, that, to, that he would come to, to find those who are turning away from him so that he could redeem a people to himself who would worship him. This story, the story of the Samaritan woman, is an example of this. Here is a woman who Jesus is speaking to. And if, I, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about how this woman was a Samaritan, meaning she was despised by the Jews and despised by the non-Jews because she was a mix between the two. She was despised because she was a Samaritan and therefore was unclean and had compromised worship. She was not worthy of approach or regard because she was a woman. In that culture. And not only that, but she was someone who had been living in serial relationships, didn't have friends, didn't have anybody. She was out in the worst part of the day getting water at this well because she has been isolated from everybody else. And yet Jesus seeks her out and he exposes her, as we saw, that he is the one who is the living water that satisfies her soul. But notice how she hides. Jesus says to her, go get your husband. I have no husband. End of story. Jesus said, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. 
And the one who is, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews said that you worship on the other mountain. What is she doing? She's hiding. Right? In church, in our relationship, it is so much easier to talk theology than to talk about what's, what's going on in our hearts, is it not? It is so much easier to talk about Bible things and what the church is doing and what other churches are doing, what you like and you don't like. It is so much easier to talk about those things and to hide the things that we are afraid of. But Jesus comes to her and he seeks her out. He will cross every barrier. He will cross the barriers of race and gender and immorality, though he himself would never be immoral is that he, he removes the barrier, ultimately going to the cross, taking the barrier of punishment and the wrath of God due to us. He removes that barrier. He dies on the cross and rises from the grave, removing the barrier of death so that we could have life. And what he then does is he seeks you and he seeks me out. But our tendency is to be a little bit like a, a child in a fire is that what happens is that, as you know through your school training, is that what happens to children oftentimes when there's a fire in the house? They're afraid of the firefighters. They're afraid of the ones who is coming to rescue them. So they hide. And they, and they, and they hide, and they don't want to come out. They don't know what this thing is that is coming towards them. It's a little bit scary. It's a little bit intimidating. They, you know, they've already got so many things going on around them with the fire and the smoke, and here comes this giant mass thing that they have never seen before and never experienced, and they hide. But it's the very thing that would give them life and give them new life. And so it is with us, is that Jesus, God sent Jesus, the Father is seeking he is seeking out those who would hide from him, those who would run from him, so that we could have life and have life abundant in him. And then something else happens. Is that those that God has found, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. That he has brought us into this search and rescue mission to seek out those who are hiding. That we would draw them to know the grace of God and the living water that is found in him. Third thing for us to look at in this passage is the Father seeks worshipers to worship him. He seeks worshipers. Notice this woman's interaction. She immediately says to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim where they are. The Mount Gerizim and versus the Mount at Jerusalem. These are more than just mountains. They were a place of immense religious significance. Jerusalem being the place where God established his temple and David's kingship where the Jews had worshipped. When the kingdom split, the northern kingdom established worship at Mount Gerizim. And the reason why they did that was it was identified as the very first place that Abraham worshipped God. And so they countered that Gerizim is a much better place. It is a more right way to worship than in Jerusalem. Debate, the debate continues today, doesn't it? 
you know what? That church has really good worship. I mean, the worship in Jerusalem is so much better than the worship at Mount Gerizim. In fact, I even heard that over at Jerusalem, they are now serving St. Innie's coffee during the fellowship time in between the breaks. In fact, I even heard that they're going through this new, this new series. Or did you hear that new guitarist? The worship at Gerizim is so much better. Do you see what this woman's doing is that she is focusing on the outward form and expression of worship. She is focusing on the outward mechanics of what is happening here. And Jesus does emphasize that there is a, you know, that God had set Jerusalem apart for salvation comes from the Jews. But look at his response there. He says, woman, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And this is something that if you've ever been in a church service that talks about worship, you hear people say true worship is worshiping God in spirit and truth. And so it would be correct to say something like this. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? Well, God is a spirit, so we need to worship with our spirits. That is, that we need to worship God from the heart, genuinely, sincerely. It needs to involve our love, our affections, our desires, us fully setting all of these things upon God as their true object. And that would be true, and there's a lot of implications about that. And to worship God in truth means that you need to worship God, not however you want to, but you need to worship God according to the word of God. You need to let his word strike us at the core of our beings and that we would respond. So what it means to worship in spirit and truth is to worship God from the heart and according to God's word. That would be true. But I believe it's incomplete. And this is in particular where other times that I've preached on this, have been true but incomplete. And here's why. Verse 21, Jesus says this. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Neither here nor there. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Let me ask you, when she brings up this question, which mountain should we worship on? Do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship in Gerizim? The natural response to that would be, and the natural consequence would be, woman, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship God. Because you can worship God anywhere, right? You can worship God anywhere. It doesn't have to be here. It doesn't have to be there. You can worship God wherever you are. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he says. That would be the natural 
consequence, the natural conclusion, but that's not what he says here. What Jesus says is, woman, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not here, not there, not anywhere, but worship that occurs in spirit and in truth. And these two things have to go together. They, they are united together. They cannot, be, they cannot be separated one from the other, is that they are joined together. Here's a picture of this. When I was in college, I um, took an elective in photography, and despite the fact that the digital age had already come upon, was well in full force, my photography professor was a purist. And as a purist insisted that we do... Um, black and white photography, and also do the full-scale the full scale development process, which was rather fun. And so the way that it worked, this is a dark lab for those of you that are like, what is that? This is a dark lab, part of a dark room in terms of how photography would be developed. And the way that pictures would, that you would get a picture and get printed, get a, a picture developed, now almost all pictures are printed onto a piece of paper, but the way that it used to occur, and that you can still get in certain situations, is that what happens is that you had a paper or a photographic plate, and there would be light that would come upon that photographic plate. And the light would come upon that photographic plate, and then you would take that paper that has had the light on it, and you still couldn't see anything on it. And then what you would do is that you would put it in these various chemical baths so that there would be a chemical reaction and the chemical reaction would cause the light that was on the paper to become visible so that you could see the photograph. Consider it this way. The photographic paper is your heart and the light is the Word of God. The chemical is the Word of God. And the chemical treatment is the Holy Spirit, is that these things all have to go together. So to worship God in truth means, yes, is to worship God where there is no falsehood and worship Him according to the Word of God. But what does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, certainly that means it has to go with truth. I mean, you can have truth coming out. You can have the, you can have the light on the photographic plate, but if you don't have the chemical reaction, nothing develops, right? So you can have the Word of God going out, but without the Holy Spirit working, nothing occurs. But the Holy Spirit never comes without the truth of the Word of God also being there and also being present. So if the truth is the Word of God, what does it mean that it's the Spirit? And what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? To worship in spirit means that certainly to worship God with our inner being, not going through the motions. But he tells us in verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship must worship him in spirit and in truth. But, as if you're a student of John as we've been going through this, that should ring a bell. Because this isn't the first time that Jesus has said those types of words. For a chapter before, Jesus said this, speaking to Nicodemus. He said, you truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Where does the Spirit come that's inside of you? 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it will, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So where does the Spirit come from with which we are to worship Him? It comes from God Himself. And when, God, when Jesus is saying to this woman in John's Gospel that you must worship in spirit and truth, what He is identifying is that to worship God, you have to be born of the Spirit, that you have to have worship, and yet you have to have worship where you are communing with the Spirit of God, worship that is in the Spirit, and worship that is in the truth, that is united to the Spirit of God. That what Jesus is identifying here is that worship in Spirit is not speaking about the level of emotional engagement. But what he is speaking about is that are you worshiping God where you are united to the Spirit and the Spirit that God has put in you through faith in Christ is joined with God and you are communing with Him? Does that make sense? This is why it is necessary to have a relationship with Jesus and secondarily why it's necessary to be a part of a church. It's a little bit like this. I not infrequently come across people who say, you know what, I, I, I love God. And I, you know, I commune with God when, I'm, I, when I go out into nature. Like I, I go out on the water. I love being in southern Maryland because particularly with the fall, the leaves are so tr- you know, changing so much. And if I can just get out on the water, I think about God and his greatness and the beauty that he's created. And, and, and I, I commune with God there. And, and I, really, I really experience God, God there when, I, when I'm out in nature. Well, of course you do, right? You're seeing something beautiful and you're thinking about God. Of course you're thinking about God when you're thinking about God, right? Of, of course you're thinking about God when you're examining the handiwork of God. Okay, there's nothing profound about that, okay? Well, you're going somewhere and you're pondering God while you're looking at something God made, okay? You know God a little bit more through that. You're interacting with him, okay? And so the picture goes a little bit like this. It's to say, imagine you look at a Ford Model T, and you look at a Ford Model T, and by looking at a Ford Model T and you study Ford cars, is that through that, you can begin to know something about Henry Ford, right? You can learn and, and you can come to some conclusions. You can say, you know, Ford, he, he was a smart guy. I mean, this guy was really efficient. He knew how to get stuff done. He was somebody who... Um, really researched stuff. He knew what people wanted. He did his homework. And so you could go to a museum, a Ford museum, and you could come in there and you could say, you know what? I already know a whole lot about Henry Ford. <laughs> but the joke goes on and goes like this. But you're not going to stick your head under the foot and you're going to under the hood of a car and say, hey, Henry, how you doing? He's not going to communicate back with you. You're not going to communicate and commune with Henry Ford just because you know a whole lot about Henry Ford. Similarly, you're not communicating with God just because you observe the handiwork of God and the things that God has done and the things that God has made. You're not going to stick your head in the water and say, God, it's really great to see you. And he's like, glad you stuck your head under. I was wondering where you go, right? It doesn't work like that. 
And that's where this verse comes back in. How do you worship God? You have to do it in spirit and in truth. You worship God not, not in observation, but you worship him in the spirit. Well, how specifically, how do you do that? Well, Jesus begins and tells us. He says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, when either on this mountain or on that, that mountain, verse 23, but the hour is coming, he states it again, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What is Jesus identifying? In John's gospel, whenever, when you look at every time that God, Jesus uses the word the hour, the hour, Jesus' hour, it always refers to the hour of Jesus' death on the cross. It always refers to that. And so what Jesus is saying to this woman is saying, listen, woman, the hour is now here. It is coming. It is coming because the cross is coming. And when the cross comes, the boundaries will be, the boundaries will be conquered and removed. When the cross comes, when you put your faith in me, what happens is that the Spirit of God will dwell in you. The hour is coming, but he says, is now here because Jesus is already here and he's already begun. The woman begins to get what's going on. She's beginning to understand that if she wants to know God and worship God in spirit and truth, it's going to have to come through the one who gives us access to the Father, who unites our spirit with his spirit. And who is that one? It is the Christ. And she says, I know that the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. And what does Jesus say? Woman, I'm it. Lady, I who speak to you am he. I am the one through whom the Spirit of God can enter into you. I am the one who will bring you into all truth. And if you want to know the Father, it has to come through me because it is only through me that you get to know Spirit, you get the Spirit of God, and you get the truth of God. What is all this saying? God is seeking worshipers. God is seeking And he is seeking worshipers to worship him. And you become a worshiper through Jesus Christ and putting your faith in him. And then what happens is that when you are in Christ, you then seek Christ through the Spirit of God and through the truth of God through his word. And then you suddenly have a radically different perspective on what happens here on Sunday mornings. It is so different in the life of any person. If It is so different to come to church on the one hand saying that you come to church and, you're, and you come to church expecting. And maybe you don't think it, but the thought that's going through your mind, or at least the attitude, is this. Ooh, I wonder what they're going to do today. Ooh, I wonder how good the worship's going to be, whatever that means. Oh, I wonder, I wonder what I'm going to get out of the message. If that's how you enter into worship and what we're doing here, I promise you, worship at Mount Gerizim will always be better than what's here. And if you go to some other church looking for the same thing, guess what? Worship will be better in Jerusalem than it was at Mount Gerizim. 
you will always be seeking, you will always not find what you're looking for. However, if you come to a worship service where God promises to engage with us and interact with us in a way that cannot occur individually, because individually the Spirit of God dwells in you if you're a Christian. But when we gather together, what happens is that the Spirit of God dwells in you, and it dwells in you, and it dwells in you, and it dwells in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And God takes all of us together, united by his truth, and there is an experience and an interaction and a communion with the Spirit of the living God and the corporate worship of his people that cannot occur individually. God designed it that way. So if you come here seeking to commune with God, If you are coming here with the expectation, seeking, saying, Spirit, I need you to perform a chemical reaction in my heart so that your truth will imprint me. So that your truth will become the image of my life. If you come here seeking God and seeking his spirit to change you, you will find that you didn't come here because you were seeking God. You will find that you have come here Because the Father has been seeking you. And he has been seeking you again and again. And when you hide, he seeks you again. And when you get in the corner because you're terrified and you're afraid, he lovingly calls you out again and again. And he says, come, stop worshiping everything else and consume yourself with the one thing that you most need which is God himself. The Father is seeking worshipers to worship him. By his grace, may we worship him in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father, you are a spirit. So, Lord, we pray for your spirit to unite, deepen, enrich our knowledge and relationship with you. Father, we pray that your spirit would take your word and imprint them on our lives in such a way that your spirit would take your words, which reveals the glory of Christ, who he is and what he has done. Lord, we pray that your spirit would take your word and it would react with us so that when other people see us, They don't see a white photograph, but they see Christ himself reflected in us and through us. Lord, would you do that by your grace, by your spirit, for your glory, we pray. Amen.